who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
so this area was Catholic and this area was Lutheran and this area was more Calvinist and this area was Mennonite. And so much so that it would be kind of the legal enforced, you know, kind of agreed upon branch of Christianity. There was this uh, elector named Frederick III in the state of Germany called the Palatinate, one of 300 states in Germany. And when he came to his position, he surveyed the land and met with people, and he discovered that, much to his chagrin, he was pretty committed and excited about um, a lot of the ideas of the Reformation in his Christian faith, and especially the more uh, Reformed or Calvinist uh, branches. He was, the, in the Palatinate, the agreed-upon branch was Lutheranism, but he was discouraged and dismayed, to get back to what I was saying, by how children and youth were not learning the good foundations consistently about what the Bible teaches about their faith. So he saw the need to commission a group of theologians to create a catechism. Um, and so there was a seminary and several actually pretty young, in their 20s, theologians who got together and created the Heidelberg Catechism, which was then sort of accepted in the region and used um, for people of all ages as a way of understanding what the Bible teaches. And it was a couple of things about it. It's character. It's, uh, it, it's about basic Christianity, but it's done in a very biblical way. So there's sources listed constantly. There's the Bible's reference throughout it. And like most catechisms of its era, and for the thousand years beforehand, it dealt with the big, major building blocks of the Christian faith. So it's, it kind of teaches about each of these and, and what the Bible teaches about them. The Heidelberg, or the, I'm sorry, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, um, and what's the other one? The Sacraments. Teaching about each of these in a very biblical way. Not only just biblical, but in a way, because in the Palatinate, Frederick III was concerned, there's a lot of people who didn't necessarily say, I'm Lutheran. So there was some diversity within the branches of Protestantism in that region, and he wanted to, to give something that would be helpful to all and unify as opposed to divide. So this is not a statement of the Catechism that um, uses the specifics in order to say, I'm not like that, and we're different, but it was more like, this is what Christians believe. As time goes on, eventually this Heidelberg Catechism gets more popular um, worldwide. It makes its way into the Protestant Reformation in the Netherlands and in the Dutch Reformed churches, which becomes uh, several branches of the Christian tree. One of them, the Christian Reformed Church of North America, which is our parent church. It's the denomination we find ourselves in. And so in our service installing our first elders and deacons in April, we have elders and deacons who were uh, affirming their uh, consent and their confirmation of the teachings in uh, what we call the three forms of unity, the, which includes the Heidelberg Catechism. The other ones are the Canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession. And then we have these regional meetings uh, twice a year for churches all throughout Northern California, and they get together. And um, anybody who's a new delegate, an elder and a deacon who's a new delegate to that meeting, has to, at the beginning of this meeting, 
come up and form something called the Covenant of Office Bearers, which includes consenting to the three forms of unity, including the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, some of you are, are already, I, I know, in your head, you're going, oh my goodness, this is, this, this isn't this odd. I had no idea I was going to a church to have this kind of stuff going on. I mean, isn't it so old-fashioned and outdated? You know, to be, isn't it, isn't it just the cause of so many problems to be going down this train of doctrinalism? You know, I just want to be about love and kindness and, and, and goodness. And not this one of these doctrinal fanatics. I'm spiritual. I'm not a doctrinal fanatic. And I, you know, I can... I can definitely resonate with that. There is something that must be pointed out, is that in many areas of our lives, in most areas of our lives, where something's really important to us, and I would say faith and spirituality, and if you're a Christian, your Christian faith is, is pretty central and important to you. In lots of areas where there's something important, we're, we're not so quick to check our brain at the door with respect to the inner workings of that part of our life. We don't say with our car, for example. We don't say, you know, you know, I'm not one of those rigid people who, you know, hears a sound under the hood and has to take it to a knowledgeable mechanic. You know, isn't that where all the problems start? You know, I'm not one of those change the oil fanatics. I'm not one of those get the spark plug size right kind of freaks. You know, I just say just about being in a car and just getting where you need to go. I'm just a car driver. I'm not one of these, you know, nitpicky freaks when it comes to my car. You could go on and on other parts of your life and say the same thing. If it's important to you, you want to kind of pop the hood open once in a while, make sure everything's in good working order. That's a little bit how spirituality works. And in a sense, doctrine, as much as we have an aversion, almost an allergic reaction to that word today, probably for the last 30 or 40 years growing. Even though we have that allergy, doctrine is what's under the hood of the Christian faith. And just like your car will break down if you don't do any kind of regular maintenance and you're just committed to being in the car and driving, eventually you'll be stuck on the side of the road. And just in the same way with your faith, there's a sense in which it'll break down. And in the end, it won't really get you where you need to be going if you don't look under the hood and see some of the specifics. Now, I'm not talking about naked doctrine, you know, stripped of its humanity like a math textbook full of dead formulas. Sorry for the anti-math bias there, mathematicians. For Christians, when we're looking at um, these important things like the Heidelberg Catechism, I'm assured of my belonging to God. When we're looking at this, when we're talking about this and the specifics of this, for Christians, it's pulsating with rich, earthy texture of the stories from which these specifics come. So when Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, says, But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And showing its theme, it comes back to it at the end of that statement saying, because I belong to him. This is not just kind of a 
a nice statement, a heady statement. This comes and flows out of the many, many belonging stories that God gives us in the Bible. Jesus seemed to be completely unable to get away from this belonging kind of trend. Constantly enfolding people who it seemed shouldn't belong in the place that he was enfolding them. I think of um, Mary as one example, whose sister Martha thought for sure she doesn't belong at the feet of a rabbi. She belongs in the kitchen, helping get the meal ready. And Jesus said she's picked the better way. Jesus kind of kicks his hat amidst a culture where women were not allowed to become disciples of a rabbi. That Mary is in exactly the right place where she belongs. And then just take another Jesus example. There's hundreds probably of these. That when his life has come to an end, he's on the cross. He's got two criminals on either side of him. One of them's heaping insults. The other one's kind of... Um, coming to Jesus' defense, and this criminal is admitting that he deserves this um, execution. He's, he's lived a nasty life, apparently, and Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's just, what, what, how, does, how, does, how do we even compute and understand this, this great sense lean, where Jesus is always leaning in towards enfolding those who we would say, I don't think Jesus, it works that way. It's all throughout the Bible. I'd love to point out that Abraham and Sarah, the people that God begins this renewal work in this broken and messy world, he begins by making a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. But who are they? Well, they were, they were good religious um, Jews, right? No, they were plucked out of this, you know, uh, heathen nation of idol worshipers. But God takes them and says, I'm going to begin to make a people of belonging and eventually that's going to flower into the people in, who, who have Jesus come from and the people who flow from Jesus to create the church of all nations. And you keep going through the, the Bible, you see these over and over. I've got to point out one last one that's especially shocking because it kind of spans the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's this, this woman named Rahab. And she was a rule-breaking Canaanite who was colossally, ceremonially unclean because she was one of Jericho's hookers. In terms of all of the things you'd see in the law of God given through Moses and all of the ways that people were supposed to be clean and the people who were acceptable to belong in the people of God, Rahab was outside of those. And yet, you know what happens to her? Is she becomes one of the few women who's actually mentioned, not just in the genealogy of King David, a man after God's own heart, but she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab, one who absolutely doesn't belong in a genealogy like that, right? This is God. This is God at work, just constantly pulling people into belonging, and there's specifics that come along with that. There's specifics, like in this catechism, as it flows into the second little paragraph, it says, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Then it says, he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Then it says, he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head. And it moves on towards the end to say that Christ, by his Holy Spirit, is going to make me wholeheartedly ready to live for him. And I kind of count those with my fingers of four things because look at how those are found also in another key belonging story in Scripture. 
one last one. The story of the Israelites and their exodus out of Egypt. That underdog, ethnic minority people who were slaves under the Egyptian hands. And as they're brought out, as God hears their cries for mercy and brings them out, there's some specifics that mirror. If you're just following along in the catechism there where it says, He fully paid for all my sins. Just kind of, if you're able to, listen to what I'm saying, but also watch those statements up there. They come out, one of the first things, the specific things that has to happen is there has to be blood on the doorpost of those who are going to kind of belong in this group that is saved. Very specific power in the Bible of this blood as a saving way or a marker of saving. Then as the Israelites are fleeing and then the armies of Pharaoh are are um, released with their war weapons chasing after them. Um, what we're seeing is we're seeing Israel being freed from the tyranny, as this statement says, the tyranny of evil or of the devil, but they're being freed from the tyranny of slavery. And then as they go through the Red Sea, every last one of them, every last one of these Israelites is carefully cared for and watched over in such a way you might say that a hair wouldn't fall from their head, that every last one of them makes it through the Red Sea, and every last one of these bloodthirsty warrior uh, slave holders, the water slams on them and drowns them so that God's people can make their way forward and eventually so that you and I can hear the story and learn how Jesus fulfills all of these things. And then eventually, they make their way to Mount Sinai, and what do they receive? They receive, after all that, the blood and the self, and the being saved and the being freed from tyranny and being watched over, then they get these instructions from God on how to respond to their new status as those who belong to God. So yeah, amen. You see this flow, you see it happening, and the catechism draws this out. Very intentional order of how this is happening. So we sit here and we have all kinds of different voices in our head. We might say, you know, I mean, you know, people might look at me and think I've got it, you know, I look like I fit in, but I know I don't fit in. You might have some voices in your head that say, I don't belong. I don't look like a Christian supposed to look. I don't have the impulses coming up inside of me that I think other Christians have. I don't fit in that box. And I'm here to tell you, there is not a box. There is not a box. There is just all kinds of people that God decides to draw in to this misfit group of belonging. And the order, I want to get back to what I was just saying a second ago. The order is very important. The order of the catechism shows us that this is going to, and I'm going to repeat this every week, from misery to deliverance to gratitude. Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. That's the shape of the catechism, and that's important for you to have every day with you in life if you're going to understand what it is to be a Christian. Because you, don't, you aren't given the Ten Commandments and then told, Israel is not given the Ten Commandments and then told, if you do this, I'll save you and I'll rescue you and I'll watch over you. They're saved, they're rescued, they're washed over, and then they're given the chance to respond. And that's how the catechism flows. You're not told to obey in order to belong. You are given belonging in order to obey. Amen. Let's pray. Our God of grace, we thank you for the effusive, incredible, overflowing cornucopia of stories in Scripture that over and over 
shouts at us that we belong. And if we believe it, we find peace and joy in a life that's inspired by your own Holy Spirit to live for you. So I pray that wherever we are on that journey, that belonging would draw us in through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.